Hey. Congratulations Look. to a good week. Yeah. And uh, I had so much fun binding this. This is the biggest binding that we have, right? So let's this show is... everybody. This is something we're going to be talking day. about now. This is the most recent Supreme Court of Canada decision in a case called JJ. And it's massive. Yeah, at least a five pound, <laughs> six pound decision. And this is a um, really, uh, you know, landmark decision by the Supreme Court of Canada with respect to the amendments that came out in 2018. We'll talk about it. But these are with respect to sexual assault cases and motions now and uh, with respect to documents or records which are in the possession of accused and they have to bring a motion to have it vetted by a court and see if it's admissible. Unprecedented. And frankly, this decision, well, the legislation was challenged as to whether it was unconstitutional and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is the decision. And this decision is a 6-3 split. So there's nine members of the Supreme Court of Canada, six for the majority, three for the minority. And as far as I'm concerned, it created a fundamental shift in evidence in Canada, specifically with respect to sexual assault cases. But this is a monumental shift in evidence. It almost feels this case and this decision like an anniversary for us because we first met talking about why this legislation was so bad. And then that's kind of how we connected and ended up working together is because we were both saying, like you said, this is catastrophic, which even though they, they deemed it constitutional, you know, there's the dissenting decisions and written separately by all three dissenting judges. Uh, the main one is by Justice Brown. But he starts out, and I just actually want to point out, just for a little vindication for our point of view, so strongly worded. So just take it so so everybody can follow that what Diana's going to refer to now. So when a court writes a decision, you'll have a decision written for the majority and then a decision if there's dissenting opinions for the minority. So you're going to read from the minority. So they're they're not in the winning section, okay? So there's three judges, and you're going to read something extremely important slowly. Yeah, and it's very strongly worded. So my favorite two sentences, very short sentences, uh, right from the, the beginning of Justice Brown's dissent is, Parliament has legislated a formula for wrongful convictions. Indeed, it has all but guaranteed them. That's how bad this legislation potentially could be if Justice Brown is right. And uh, I mean, there's, we found ways to work around it, but um, but essentially it was drafted and the first two paragraphs of the majority decision talk about the need for more convictions, essentially. I'll read that now, but this is an extremely poignant way to start this podcast. And this may be a bit of a somber podcast for us because sometimes you know we're a bit animated, and, you know, we have fun, but you just read something incredibly important. So this is a, a, a justice of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada who opened up uh, their written reasons saying, Parliament has legislated a formula for wrongful convictions. Indeed, it has all but guaranteed them. That is chilling. And it and- seems to me to be the goal. To gain, to gain convictions at any cost. And, and, and the minority actually wrote this, which I'll, I'll just add in at paragraph 198. These appeals arise from a measure that also imposes precisely that risk. The record screening regime 
enacted under these sections of the Criminal Code represents an unprecedented and unconstitutional erosion by Parliament of the fair trial rights of the presumptively innocent, who it should be borne in mind, will sometimes be actually innocent. He's the first one to point that out. <laughs> There's a presumption of guilt that just sort of permeates the entire majority decision, a presumption of guilt. It seriously impedes the ability of such persons to prove that innocence by making presumptively inadmissible all private records relating to the complainant that are in the possession of the accused and which the accused intends to adduce in a sexual offense prosecution. There's a lot of fancy language right there too, but the important part is that they have a specific exemption in, in the majority section saying this only applies to the same evidence in the hands of the Crown? Fine. Crown does not have to worry about it. It does not apply to the Crown. Explain that for a second, slowly, so everybody gets this. So it means that privacy rights of an accused... Do not exist. Doesn't matter. Right. Explain it slowly, so everybody gets this. This is so... I'm trying not to swear. I'm so trying to cut back. It's like I'm in Swear Anonymous. Please explain. Swearaholics. Just, yeah. Uh, so, so the, I mean, it was an interesting point brought up prior to this decision where some, because the judges in the lower courts were really diverse opinions and so on, but it had been pointed out, well, if the complainant has a privacy right in her text messages. Let's just use text messages instead of just records. Because records say she, it, you know, a complainant can be he. Yeah. Right. So you know, we're not. This isn't. A but he if a complainant has a privacy interest in in records, so, so much so that we want to make sure we don't shock and horrify them when they get onto the stand to testify. Um, but the exact same messages, same sequence of messages. If the complainant hands it over to the police, the accused doesn't have a privacy interest that the complainant can give that over and it can be used any way the Crown sees fit, really. Correct. So we're talking about communications between an accused and a complainant. And these communications can be by email, by text message, over a, an app, and which is very common when people are in a relationship or a short dating, whatever. And they will communicate typically by you know some electronic means. So the communications, and and we'll go into this in more detail, but the Supreme Court actually uh, created more problems by including in the presumptively inadmissible uh, records even messages that are about the actual allegation. So up until now, if it was a communication about that which the complainant has said was a criminal offense, it was admissible. Yes. Now, even if it's about that, it's presumptively inadmissible. So there's two sections of the code that um, relate to evidence in, in charges that have a sexual nature to them that are all enumerated or whatever, right? But generally sexual assault charges, where there's section 276, which specifically deals with evidence of a sexual nature. It used to be um, prior sexual history, but now it's called anything of a sexual nature, which is I find a little bit too broad in term terminology. Because like, you know, what do you, is flirting sexual? It's like, it gets a little bit crazy sometimes. Um, so 276 covered that, and that was supposed to be the most strict Part of the code. Then what they brought in is, you know, it's section 278.92 that covers non-sexual evidence as well. Non-sexual. Yeah. So these can be mundane communications about, um, oh, what time does the flight leave? 
You know that. You what know. time are we getting together for dinner tonight? What time are you coming over to my house? Right. Yeah, they all have to be vetted now, and you could take like if the complainant gives three messages to the to the crown. Uh, for those in the states, that's the prosecutor. Um, gives those messages to, uh, to you know over to be used against him, and then we have a sequence that shows that messages were cut out. You know, now we can't just do that. And that's a pretty big thing to eliminate certain messages and selectively like cherry pick evidence. And then now we have to reveal it all up front. So what you're saying, which importantly, just just to hone in on is, so these very communications, if a complainant has it on her phone or computer and she decides to turn over some of these messages to the police, which then hands it to the prosecutor, those messages can be used by the prosecution. There is no complaint that can be made by an accused that there's their own privacy interest. That doesn't matter. So there's a double standard here. And importantly, often messages are not given out in some sort of comprehensive, coherent fashion. It may be picked from various messages over several days by the complainant by the complainant and turned over to the police so then it's incumbent upon the defense to say okay hold on that's out of context but we have to relieve our you know we have to give all our cards over and explain the context and explain explain why it's important to the defense and outline your defense and the complainant gets to be present and make arguments to try and block your evidence from court and so it's important the minority actually noted and this is extremely opposite here. It is the only evidentiary rule that mandates pretrial disclosure of defense evidence and strategy before the Crown has made out a case to meet, and even where the evidence sought to be relied on is neither irrelevant nor inherently prejudicial. So that means even evidence that's relevant and not really prejudicial still is f***ing barred until you bring this motion, barred. presumptively barred, can't do it, have to bring this motion, have to reveal why? your strategy and lay it all out. And why? Because defense lawyers get demonized. You know, they're even saying it's common for defense lawyers to attack complainant's credibility. Well, I mean, that is a key factor in getting somebody convicted is that the accuser has to be credible. So of course, you're going to be going after credibility uh, in, in a variety of different ways. But they kind of demonize as if all defense lawyers if not restrained, will do the most dirty-handed, you know, tactics, and uh, and completely uh, derail the the dignity of a complainant to win a case. So that's a great segue into the majority judgment. So again, majority minority. So six judges, Supreme Court of Canada, ruled that this was constitutional, and they started off their reasoning and the decision as follows. I'm going to read it slowly. It's important for us to absorb this. Paragraphs one and two, <laughs> right off the top. <laughs> Paragraphs one and two. Yeah. If I stumble, please come in because this is... The criminal trial process can be invasive, humiliating, and degrading for victims of sexual offenses, in part because myths and stereotypes continue to haunt the criminal justice system. Historically, Trials provided few, if any, protections for complainants. More often than not, they could expect to have the minutia of their lives and character unjustifiably scrutinized 
in an attempt to intimidate and embarrass them and call their credibility into question, all of which jeopardized the truth-seeking function of the trial. It also undermined the dignity, equality, and privacy of those who had the courage to lay a complaint and undergo the rigors of a public trial. Over the past decades, Parliament has made a number of changes to trial procedure, attempting to balance the accused's right to a fair trial, the complainant's dignity, equality, and privacy, and the public's interest in the search for truth. This effort is ongoing, but statistics and well-documented complainant accounts continue to paint a bleak picture. Most victims of sexual offenses do not report such crimes, and for those that do, only a fraction of reported offenses result in a completed prosecution. More needs to be done. <laughs> and I found that so weasley to call Holy f I find that so weasley to say result in completed prosecutions. What they mean is convictions. Yeah. Like we've litigated like a ton of sexual assault cases over the years. They get f***ing completed. It's not like they stop because somebody runs away or the court explodes. Getting a charge with John is they so incredibly difficult. They only do it when they can see that the complainant is not going to be credible and it's going to be uh, a waste of court time. But, you know, here's the fallacy. Criminal trial process can be invasive, humiliating, degrading for victims of sexual offenses. Well, it's degrading for everybody. It's degrading for an accused person, too. Yeah. In part because myths and stereotypes continue to haunt the criminal justice system. With all due respect, we go out of our way. And again, this is not shameless promotion as one person attacked me on Twitter. This is about how you run a case properly with dignity and respect. It doesn't help you to raise know. myths. It doesn't. It doesn't no. ask you to. It doesn't help you to raise or stupid questions humiliate and unnecessarily harass complainants no it just no. makes you look like a, a bad person and it doesn't help the defense at and all and frankly if you do that in front of a jury or a good trial judge you're going to lose mm -hmm. that's not a tactical advantage and frankly that's not my experience with trials it's certainly not the way we run it so when they say myths and stereotypes continue to haunt the criminal justice system this is 2022 with a lot of education to judges and a lot of extremely good lawyers where I'm familiar with in the province of Ontario. Skilled, articulate, capable, have brains, they know how to read law. This is not our experience. And there's regular laws of evidence too that already existed. Judges have, you know, free reign over how the trial runs. If it's gonna be of that ilk, then they're gonna stop it. Historically, trials provided few, if any, protections for complainants. Often, expect to have the minutia of their lives and character unjustifiably scrutinized to intimidate and embarrass. Dude, that is the past. That's 20, 30 years ago. That's not 2021, 2022, or going into 2023. That is the past that they're speaking to. That ship has sailed. One of the things that always strikes me having, you know... Sorry, just one other thing. And call their credibility into question. That's the... Everybody's well, credibility it, is... What's at issue is credibility. For Very both. few often times do you have, you know, a video of what happened, okay? So it's all a matter of credibility. Yes, we're going to call the credibility into question in defending a case. This isn't bashing female complainants. This is about due process, fair trials, and, you know, that we used to have that principle. It's better to let 
12 guilty people go free than have one wrongful conviction. And it must be explained, this is not an agreement to let 12 guilty people go free. No. It's, it's a concept. It's a philosophical concept because a lot of people don't like Blackstone's principle. Right. It's a good one. But it's because not they think what it, we want. I think it a... means we're agreeing to let, like, like, like we're making a numbers deal or something like that. <laughs> right. But no, because the criminal justice system has such incredible power and how it has such an impact on people's lives, we have to ensure that there are strong principles at play to protect against wrongful convictions. That's why that maxim came out. It's not a mathematical equation we live by. It's just the notion, the concept that it's better to have some guilty people go free to ensure that our system is fair and that those that are innocent aren't wrongfully convicted. And we've seen the damage and the danger of that. We're not saying that all complaints that come forward about sexual abuse are false. We're not saying that. We're talking about a justice system based upon the best we can do with human nature and human beings assessing a case. Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the things that, that I like to point out too is that you have to think about for an innocent person who's accused, the humiliation for them that people, first of all, find out that they're being accused of something. Maybe that the person, people find out that they even had sex with somebody because maybe they didn't really want people to know that they had... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then they also have to talk about their personal private life and they don't have a choice. They must respond because they're charged. And as hard as it may be to go forward, complainants still have a choice. An accused person does not have a choice. And nobody thinks about how humiliating it is for them to have to get up, especially because normally their parents will come and be supportive to them. And their parents are going to listen to all these details they have to give out about their sex life. Look, nobody cares about that. No, and, and you know, again, this is not... This is not us uh, denigrating in any way real and true, genuine allegations of abuse. We are not. For those people who have been truly victimized, uh, they are deserving of the utmost attention by the authorities to investigate and for the prosecutors to mount a prosecution. It just has to meet due, f due process, fairness, and principles that we have and that we hold very dear in a democratic society. That's all we're saying. And it is difficult to testify if you're a real victim. It is. It's not difficult to testify if you're lying about it. You know, again, for a complainant to testify about what went on is invasive. It's not pleasant. That said, that's the system we have. There's no other way to do it. We can't ameliorate that type of indignity. It's the process we have. It's the best we have. And frankly, this is a pretty damn good system. And so you can't look to the criminal justice system to be this genteel tea party. It's not. It's not, you know, a, a confirmatory, you know, uh, stroking system where, you know... It's an adversarial system. It's, it's specifically designed to be adversarial for a very good reason. So you can't go into it with the blinders that this is going to be you know, some sort of a cathartic experience. It's going to be a battle. That said, at the end of the day, for whoever, whichever side, there may be justice. But there has to be fair principles. And when the Supreme Court of Canada starts off in paragraph one and paragraph two about the statistics about, you know, the, the, the bleak picture of people who come forward and then most victims of sexual offenses don't report. And for those to do, only a fraction resulted in complete prosecutions. More needs to be done. More convictions need to happen is what they're I'm saying. I'm sorry, That's this is not what, what I expect saying. of our court system. This is not what I expect or so. we should expect 
from Supreme Court of Canada, with all due respect. And I have said this a number of times. We have a very bright Supreme Court of Canada. I don't believe any of them want to go out and create wrongful convictions. But by their own doing, they have opened the door now very strongly to wrongful convictions. This is not about fixing a statistic. It's about fairness. Now, we wrote an article as soon as this came out, and which, which I think summarized things well. There was a point that was made off the beginning. There was some need for guidance if the legislation stands, yes. and it, it has been in existence since, was it December of 2018? That's correct, yeah. And uh, so this is like lots of years going by. Some provinces, it was thrown out, so it didn't apply in some provinces. It was so uneven across the whole country. We right. needed a decision. We needed some guidance. And one of the things, as I was reading through this, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, I almost like I was throwing my glasses on the table. I was like throwing things around the rim. I was getting so frustrated because they kept on saying they were going to give guidance. And then they used what I would call weasel words saying, well, this wouldn't necessarily apply to everything. And it's just like, so here's our guidance. These things will likely be true. It's like likely that is not helpful. It still leaves it open. And then of course they use the word contextual. Yeah, so you're, you're referring to something great. So there's a number of records. So that means documents or communications well, in the possession of the accused. Well, this is a whole dispute. What is a record? There's one that we all understand. You know, medical, therapy, and employment information. We understand that. But a record for other purposes, the Supreme Court said it's based on content and context, not only the platform of the information, such as a text or audio recording. So there really is no guidance as to what they mean. And in fact, they opened, this is where we started off in saying, you know, I find this very hard, but, you know, they, they said 278.1, which is one of the, the sections of the criminal code that's relevant. Defines what a record is. Defines a record. So where privacy is engaged, namely the provision concerns only records that could cause potential prejudice to the complainant's personal dignity. These factors suggest that the scheme is not intended to catch more mundane inf information. Moreover, given the accused's right to make full answer defense, mere discomfort associated with less lesser intrusions will generally be tolerated. It doesn't help us. In the context of complaints, privacy in open court will be at seri risk, ser sorry, serious risk only where the sensitivity of the information strikes at the subject's more intimate self. Sherman Estate at paragraph 74. I know, just Th such a bizarre case. Sadly, the Sherman uh, investigation into the, that homicide, that really doesn't help anybody. Th this is really a throwaway that doesn't help give guidance. And it's, I mean, and again, privacy is so subjective. So anybody can claim that they feel their privacy is violated. And as we see, you know, violence is all kinds of things nowadays, just like, you know, somebody using a word that, that uh, triggers you in some way is some sort of a violent form of violence. So so again, we're, we're still lost as to what is it that's going to be, that's going to strike at your dignity. You know, it's just not helpful. We'll be at serious risk only where the sensitivity of the information strikes at the subject's more intimate self. You know, what does that mean? Okay, here's another thing that got me. They're saying, okay, it should be fairly clear. It's got to be a record with some, it's the content that matters, not whether, so it's not automatically a record because it happens to be a text message between the, you know, the accused and the complainant or whatever. It depends on the content. But then they actually say in the end, after they go through this whole thing about guidance, they go, in the end, the accused is in possession of the evidence. They know what it is. They know the context of it. So they should be able to figure it out. But if you're wrong. You're in trouble. If you, yeah. If you, if you think there's no way. Judge will shut you down. You can have a mistrial. Your client and can ultimately, get convicted. 
So based on let other me just decisions. break this down for a second. So the Supreme Court of Canada said, you know, lawyers who are in possession of these records should be able to determine based upon this decision and other decisions. You don't need a judge. You can, you can figure it out. What's a record? <laughs> and we used to have something called motion for direction. So if we weren't sure, we could bring a motion um, and and disclose the information and try and determine, is this something which is captured by the section? Based upon this decision, we abandoned a motion for directions and said, F it. I'm not going to make this decision because, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Well, the there purpose, though, the purpose is that you could actually seal the stuff and the complainant can't have standing, right? So you could actually find out if you even need to go through the whole process where the complainant can then argue against you and get provided a lawyer to do so and all this other stuff. So if it's not a record and you can find out first, then what they did is they said the complainant might actually get standing at a motion for directions to find out if you need right. to do an application where they don't have standing. Yeah, so for those who are not familiar with what we're talking about is, you know, when you bring a motion to a court to say help, motion for directions, help, Here's the documents. Are these actually a record that engages these core privacy rights of the complainant? Or is this something that's not engaged that way? And the complainant doesn't get standing. They're not a participant in that proceeding. That's all by the side now, because in their reasoning, they said, well, at a motion for directions, maybe a complainant could have standing because these issues are engaged. It just made the whole process unworkable. Yeah, we don't think you should be using court time to do this. Right. If you can't figure it out, then bring our application. Right. So really, in essence, what, what it did was it said to us, who's very familiar with these cases, is to say, forget it. A motion for directions is a waste of money for our clients. It's a waste of time. Just bring the motion. We have no choice but to disclose, period. We just got to do it. Done. But I wanted to say again, when we opened up, we said the Supreme Court expanded in this case, what a record is. So let's just imagine hypothetically for a complaint, and you have to think about this, and then I want Nobody you to Nobody was comment. even disputing this. They did this on their own. I didn't even think this was a, 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 a... I think the Crown was actually thinking subject matter of the charge. Like, this is what you're going to get into. Right. So what you're saying is what the Supreme Court of Canada did on this one point, we don't think anybody was really arguing. But so let's say the, the allegation is... Um, Somebody has been dating for about two months. They went out on a date. They had intimate relations that night. The complainant thought she was sexually assaulted, um, but they have communications afterward. And the communications say, I had a great night. Dinner was wonderful. I loved our time together. Um, you know, you were, such, you were so hot in, in bed. Oh, thank you so much. You were wonderful. I really love being with you. And there's this exchange. But then afterward comes this complaint saying that I was sexually assaulted. And that is the, communi the communications are about that particular date, that particular night, that particular sexual encounter for which the complainant, which is called the subject matter of the charge, which is called the subject matter of the charge says was a sexual assault. It used to be up until this decision that when you could pinpoint it directly to the allegation, that is not captured by this Even section by of the criminal what's code. supposed to be the strongest section, most protective section 276 that always that covers sexual history and so on. It was like, so that's the thing that was supposed to be the most strictly governed evidence. And it was immune. It was not captured by, and it still isn't captured by 276. Right. But the Supreme Court of Canada has now said it's a record. So if you have messages about the complaint, like about the sex that you had saying, it was wonderful. I consented. It was great. You can no longer 
hold that back and cross-examine on it. That has to be disclosed. And you gotta think about that for a second. That's an extraordinary move by the Supreme Court of Canada. So this is a recent decision, and, and actually just in, in terms of that section. Yeah, so this is a really good example of how this point now can be manipulated in other cases. Take the lead. This is really so good. So this case, and, and uh, this is actually considered uh, to be Canada's big Me Too case. This is uh, McKnight, and uh, he was essentially Canada's Weinstein. He, he was working in the bar industry, and he had like over 20 complainants or whatever. It was the first really big Canadian case. And, uh, it was in Alberta. In Alberta. So um, like, you know, I've got a bunch of other stuff in here that's really interesting, because this is one of the first cases to cite this decision, JJ, and yeah. talk about so the question is, is this going to be helpful for guidance for the courts of appeal and for the lower courts and so on? But they mentioned in, this, um, in the recent decision of JJ speaking on the topic of, and the section of JJ is called, records of a sexual nature not covered by section 276. Right. And then they quote what the Supreme Court has to say about that. And I had come across, well, Will, because I, I was tracking every decision on on these applications in terms of what was going to be allowed into court and what wasn't after the legislation passed and i remember telling you oh my god there's a case where a video it's a short video but there's a video of the complainant in the backseat of a car that is actually the moment she says she's being sexually assaulted and the judge says well it would be allowed under 276 but i think under 278.92 that it doesn't really tell us a lot about what was going on. You can't really see if she's drunk or sober or whatever. So she actually didn't allow them to use a video. Like you were saying, you usually don't have videos. They had video. They weren't allowed to use it in court. So what's the import of this case? Explain it carefully for everybody to get. Because it's important. Yeah. So and, and, and people watch from other jurisdictions. So we get, I, I, we get comments and... and uh, on Twitter, questions asked from the United States, from the UK, and from other jurisdictions. So I think it's important for uh, for other lawyers who are watching or other people from other jurisdictions to understand what bullshit is happening here. And it's not just confusing because it's law or because there's fancy language being used. It's literally confusing. Like so, we can so we can see from all of the judges who disagreed on how to interpret things that it is this is confusing as well for people members of the legal system. Absolutely. So just reiterate what's the import of this decision relying upon that aspect of So of this what case. they're what they're talking about in here and I I don't know there's some indication it might it might be appealed so we might get um, the Supreme Court to weigh in on whether or not they're interpreted properly. But what they started talking about is again what is subject matter of the charge and does it include um, proximate sexual activity. And so this has been an issue too. Is like, so if you go, in your example, you've been dating each other for a couple of months, you go back, you're, you know, you, you get into the house, you kiss, you might make it on the couch for a little bit, then you hold each other's hand to go to the bedroom. Does the sexual activity of the charge start when the bedroom door closes or does it include the kissing? Is that sexual activity? Very good point. Yeah. Look at how, look at how artificial this is. So the kissing and holding hands or touching in a living room prior to going to a bedroom is interpreted, frankly, in my opinion, as prior sexual activity. And it, may not be it relevant. It quite now. often is. You have to assume, as a defense lawyer going in, you have to assume that it will be interpreted that way. Because if you're wrong and then you get there, you're not going to be able we to do. talk about it. And, and, and that relates to, so, so that one would think it's all part of the general 
flowing of the evening, the subject matter of the allegation. So if there's this intimate contact that's truly consensual and, and, and ongoing, that would be subject matter of the charge. No, it's parsed out and can be excluded in some insane world. So the Crown in, in the McKnight case, on appeal, not at trial, but on appeal, they conceded a couple of things, saying that they, they now accept that sexual activity, other than the specific act alleged to constitute an assault, may form part of the subject matter of the charge, right? Because um, previously they had taken the position that only non-consensual activity was subject matter of the charge. So right. anything consensual, even if, you know, in the middle of a sexual assault, a person says, but then I had a really nice kissing moment with them. You wouldn't be able to talk about that because that was consensual, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. It was like, and, and there's some great quotes from judges saying how you can't parse things out because it gets ridiculous at a certain point. But the Crown had conceded, they gave an example um, agreeing that a subject matter of the charge, notwithstanding an allegation of assault, um, could include something like kissing in the living room and then walking hand in hand to the bedroom where they proceed to, the, um, where the accused is giving evidence, proceed to consensual sex. So it would be practical and sensible to treat that entire interaction as a single episode of sexual activity. The Court of Appeal in Alberta disagreed with the Crown on that. Do you get that? Like, this is so subtle. This is a very sort of academic drill down on this. But this is so important as a basis of law in Canada, a fundamental shift in evidence law here. And this will impact other jurisdictions. So the Crown thought it was part of one flow of information as to how the evening progressed, as we call in the business one transaction. The Court of Appeal said, no, no, no. What happens in the kitchen or what happens in the living room prior to going to the bedroom are all prior sexual acts. And you have to try and bring emotion to see how it's relevant. That means we are sanitizing. We are artificially breaking up what is human interaction. And we are eliminating from it truth. You talk. They talk about the truth-seeking process. Give me a break. This eliminates relevant information that leads to the truth-seeking process. And the this is bullshit. Yeah. It's absolute bullshit. And I'm sorry to say that because, again, I have good regard for our Supreme Court of Canada, but I'm I'm frankly shocked at this. It just I, didn't I, give I, guidance. And not just, as far but, as I'm but, but this is just, it's... But so they, they talk about how it's, it's very been like, sad. you know, controversial, whatever they quote, different various number of decisions saying at some point, you know, quoting another judge, um, saying at some point, parsing out each moment in a sequence of events and defining it as a separate activity becomes ridiculous. So they're quoting this saying, we're aware that some judges have felt this way and uh, that courts have noted distinction between past sexual activity and the sexual activity that forms the subject matter of the charge can be difficult to parse. And uh, the reasons they give for not agreeing with the Crown Council then jump, they say, uh, in our respectful opinion, it's too vague and open-ended to provide workable guidance to trial judges. And then to give that guidance better, they start citing JJ. <laughs> and JJ, as we said before, doesn't actually give them any guidance at all. No, because... so th they're referring to it where we don't have the guidance. So we're, we're in a flux it's, again. It's just a big circle. So I don't know if we're running, we're running long on this, but I, I, we'll, we'll wrap up. But let's say a couple of good things about this decision. But I, I think the import of what people have to understand, I'm sorry this has been a bit dry, but this is a fundamental shift in evidence law in Canada. 
And it is a fundamental shift where, as the minority had said very clearly, and I absolutely agree, it is the only evidentiary rule that mandates pretrial disclosure of defense evidence and strategy before the Crown has made out a case to meet. Mm. And even where the evidence sought to be relied on is neither irrelevant nor inherently prejudicial. This is a major, major, major blow to fairness. And it is a significant, significant support for wrongful convictions. And uh, and you don't have that type of burden or, or, or blocking of your defense strategy if you murder somebody, only if you have some sort of sexual charge. Right. So what they were saying is this does not apply in any other trial, whether it's for homicide, fraud or whatever. I will say this. Case to meet, though, I I want you to explain what that means, because that is actually, you know, this is I forgot to mention it when you read that earlier. Yeah, good point. Case to meet. I think people need need to to understand. Do it in normal terms, because I'm. Yeah, because I had to learn what exactly this meant. And and because it was a big part of the constitutional challenge. So. It involves your right to silence and your right to not even have to call a defense, right? The very first thing that happens... Who has the burden? The, the, the prosecutor always has the burden. <clears throat> and before the defense calls any evidence at all, the Crown has to call all their evidence. Right. And then you can, at the end, the Crown has to call all their witnesses, put in all the evidence that they think they have to show that you, they've met a burden of proof. Correct. And at the end of the Crown's case, they then close their case before defense says anything. Right. And at that point, the defense can actually say there's no case to meet. Well, really astute. That's great. So the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt are two core principles in every uh, common law system. The Crown or the prosecution bears the onus to prove their case. So they have to mount their case before a defense has to be called. We in sexual assault cases in Canada have to disclose these records, records. With an affidavit. With an affidavit from our client, disclosing our strategy well ahead of time, including your defense, in order to see if it's admissible. So that is- In detail, explaining the relevance of all the evidence to your defense strategy. That is something you have to do well before the Crown has ever opened their mouths or called a witness. Now, I will say one good thing. The Supreme Court of Canada did say this. So there's two stages to this process. So stage one, we file the application and all our material. They did say that on stage one, the complainant and their lawyer does not have standing. So our materials will only go to the Crown. It can be prevented from going to the complainant and their lawyer. And then a judge at stage one can decide if any or how much of the defense application should be turned over to a complainant and a lawyer, and it could just be a summary. So that's a bit of a safety valve to prevent, so we have to be fair, to prevent uh, an accused to tailoring their evidence or tailoring the argument. The complainant. uh, Sorry, the complainant tailoring their evidence uh, to what the accused has put forward. That said, it's kind of cold comfort because it's already out there, and the, the majority of applications that you bring, and we've done a lot of these, since this legislation, it's over—it's almost inevitable it has to go to stage two, and it's almost inevitable based upon the law and the legislation that they're going to have some say in it and need some disclosure. So 
it's there as a bit of a safety valve. I don't think it really means much. I think much. They, they did have some strong wording in there too about like like we read out earlier, just being uncomfortable with people hearing this stuff is not enough to make it you know a, a privacy issue. Right. So there is some good stuff that I think we can work with, and and also. We've been very successful. I'm not concerned because our applications have gone really well. Yeah. I'm not concerned with the stuff we're doing through here. I'm concerned because of my nonprofit and the number of people who contact me who couldn't afford lawyer had legal aid, all this other stuff. They're not prepared to handle this stuff. And so those are the cases where I'm thinking like these are where the wrongful convictions are going to happen. Yeah. So you, you got to, you know, as I think we should close up this, this, this segment, but, um, or, or this podcast, but that's a great point. So it's an access to justice issue, right? So you got to think about this in some terms, and and I think you got to rate, you got to talk about this a little bit as we close out. But just imagine you're accused of this offense, and you got to hire a lawyer. This is expensive. This is time consuming. These applications take a lot of time because clients will often give us, you know, not two messages, but hundreds of messages, thousands of pages, sometimes thousands of pages where your eyeballs are popping out reading it right mm-hmm. and you got to figure this out and then except on ocd so yeah thank god <laughs> but not just put it into you know a, a package for your application but assess it analyze it and argue it out in written documents so that you have this ability to marshal the defense and get it to be admissible I'm making all your defense strategy decisions before you've even heard what they're going to say in court. You're basically running the trial. You're basically going through all the trial arguments and and strategy and everything to make sure you got it right for the motion. You're doing it twice. You can only, and you can only make assumptions about what's going to be said in court based on what was said to in in the police statements and so on like you so, don't actually know. So it's an access to justice issue. Can you imagine sadly those who cannot afford but poor legal aid you know where's there's a 75-year-old that I spoke to who's self-representing because he can't qualify for legal aid. Right. And so let's just say this. There's nothing wrong. We accept legal aid certificates, but it's so chronically underfunded. I want to be, you know. And a lawyer, I want the complainant gets a free this. lawyer and an accused person can't get I want to be. I want to be sensitive about this, but, you know, we know, we know the provincial government has a lot of uh, issues with respect to funding of everything. We've got problems with healthcare. We need more nurses, we need more doctors, we need more more in our healthcare system. We need more for education. Then it comes to our criminal justice system, which is chronically underfunded. Legal aid is a very important mechanism for those who do not have resources to hire a lawyer privately and pay an hourly rate. And that is chronically underfunded where lawyers are not paid anywhere close. Is that a crisis level? They're not paid anywhere near the amount of hours necessary to do this. This is a trial in and of itself. So there's a chronic underfunding. And I have posted on Twitter what's going on in the UK. There have been cutbacks in the UK such that criminal lawyers are exiting the criminal bar. Goodbye. See you later. I can't make a living. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a little point we could make to close this up. If they want to get more convictions, this is what it looks like they're looking for. They could just cut off legal aid completely. Well, they may be doing that. I just want them to be honest. If they don't care about wrongful convictions, just say it. I just want them to be honest. Yeah, I tried that oh. once when I was in the Court of Appeal. <laughs> if you enjoy this podcast, so well. if you enjoy this podcast, like, subscribe, hit notifications, 
And if you're listening to it on Apple, I think there's some sort of a comment thing you can do. And you know what? Thank you. <laughs> Keep sending your comments because we're getting a lot of great comments and questions. And suggestions. For it, it's really episodes. helpful. And thank you very much for that. Until next time. Cheers. Oh, what, what, what? I just want to thank my client who mm. continually funds us with these wonderful Macallans. So God bless you. I can't name him. He's a client. He's innocent. He'll be proven innocent, but he is such a gem. Thank you so much. Yes. With See you good later, taste. guys. Good taste in scotch. Thank you. <laughs>